Uh, Before I uh, read our sermon text this morning, I want to explain to you why we're in Galatians 5. Uh, It looks, I know, like we have left uh, Matthew 18, 1 through 6, and that's not strictly true, uh, at least not thematically. Uh, You remember that last week we were thinking about uh, Jesus' teaching about how there is no place for pride in his church, and uh, that in particular... Uh, that's the case because of the utter incompatibility between pride and love, the very love that Jesus wants his cross to beget in the life of the community that he is creating when he builds his church. And we're in Galatians 5 this morning uh, because Paul is confronting that very same incompatibility between uh, pride and love. And because we are taking the Lord's Supper together, a meal in which, whether we are conscious of it or not, we ought to be, we are repudiating any claim to pride before God or in our relationships with one another. So the gospel is powerful. And I wanted to linger on this theme for one more week. So now hear the word of God from Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we thank you for this timely word for each of us. And how we pray now that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see how your son's gospel of free justification frees us. Frees us from pride before you and frees us from pride uh, toward one another and frees us to love you and frees us to love one another. And we pray, Father, now that the work of the Spirit would set free those who are still in their sins, who are yet dead in the trespasses and sins in which they walk. And we pray that even this day you would make them alive together with Christ because of your great love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, this is all, this passage, Paul is just tracing the implications of the gospel uh, for, uh, for pride, both in our vertical relationship with God and also in our horizontal relationship uh, with one another. And what he shows us is that the gospel of justification by faith is what frees us to love God and what also frees us to love one another. And what, Paul, what we're going to see, friends, is that until, unless and until Jesus Christ comes in the power, comes into your life and my life in the power of the gospel, his gospel of free justification by faith, by which an alien righteousness outside of us, not of our making, but of Christ's making, until he comes to rescue us with the good news of that gospel, and within which and by which he confers upon us his righteousness, until he does that, we will remain shackled on the pendulum of pride. And we will swing wildly in our relationship with God and in our relationships with one another. We will be, we'll be chained to that pendulum. Because that's what pride is. Pride is a pendulum. And we will swing wildly between the extremes of boasting and insecurity. But Paul gives us a vision of the gospel in this passage in which Jesus Christ frees us both vertically and horizontally. And so there's really only two points. 
We're freed to love God, as verses 1 through 12, and freed by the gospel to love one another, verses 13 through 26. And how, how perfect, uh, given that we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, how appropriate, right, both dimensions. When we discern the body rightly, we are discerning the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the gift of himself for us on the cross, and we are also discerning the body of Jesus Christ created by that cross in the life of his church. So let's think first about how the gospel frees us to love God. The gospel, and only the gospel, is what frees us to love God. Friends, you know, later on in the gospel of Matthew, uh, when Jesus is asked, what, what is the greatest of uh, God's, all God's commandments, he responds as follows in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37. Do you remember? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But friends, here's what the gospel shows us is that we are not free to love God until we have first been freed to love God. And the only way, according to the Apostle Paul, that you and I, anyone, can be freed to love God is, is through this amazing thing that he calls the offense of the cross in verse 11. Now, there's a big question. I know we're dropping near into the end. We're parachuting into the middle of a, an argument that's been going on for four chapters, but I think, we can, I think we can get up to speed pretty quickly, okay? There's this massive question that is on the table for the, for the Apostle Paul with the Galatians, and there are two totally incompatible answers to that question that Paul is dealing with, and only one of them is the gospel, and the other is not And the question is this. It's the central question of every person's life. It's the same question that we wrestle with. And though circumcision may not, to circumcise or to to not circumcise may not be our issue, we can relate to this. And the question is, the question on the table is, how can a sinner be right with God? How can a sinner be justified before God? How can you be reconciled to God? What is the way by which a human being can can obtain a standing before God in which he or she is righteous and approved by God and accepted by God? That is the question. And there are two totally different answers. Answer one is that men gain a righteousness or the approval of God from the bottom up. In other words, sinful men follow the rules and then give their righteousness to God, which he then approves. Now, do you know, that's every other way of life except the gospel. A bottom-up righteousness. And I'm putting scare quotes around the righteousness And then there's the way of the gospel, which is a top-down righteousness in which God gives to sinful men his righteousness. Now, only one of those is the gospel, and it's the second one, and only one of those will give you liberty. It's that second one, this top-down righteousness. 
And Paul is driving this point home for the Galatians. He's been doing it for the first four chapters, and he is not letting up. This is not a little issue for him. The incompatibility between these two approaches to that question, how can, how can a man, a person, a boy, a girl, a woman, be right with God? And either you're going to answer it and say, well, men, I, I can make myself right with God. In which case, uh, that's not a Christian answer. That's the answer of every other religion. Or the Christian answer is, God will make us right with God through Jesus Christ. And Paul wants us to feel the jarring incompatibility between these two approaches. And so he reinforces it again and again through a series of contrasts. Slavery and freedom, circumcision or Christ, severed from Christ, in Christ Jesus, justified by the law or grace, and the difference between law and love. Now there's some background that we need to have in view in order to understand what's going on here. It's a background that will connect uh, what's going on in the text with our own lives you see, the, the, the Galatians were, the Galatian Christians were converted during Paul's first missionary journey. They were Gentiles. And sometime after Paul's departure, what occasions the book of Galatians is that sometime after Paul's departure, they were exposed to teaching in which they were taught, not by the apostles, they were taught that in order, they're Gentiles, that in order for them to be truly Christian, they had to keep the Mosaic law. In other words, in order to be truly Christian, Gentile, you have to become Jewish. And that requirement is focused on the question of should these males be circumcised, these Gentile males be circumcised. Now, from the outside, let's just, you know, it's really easy to beat up on Paul's opponents in Galatians, but listen, and you won't feel the power of the gospel until you realize how much their argument actually makes sense. Because, think about it, you're a Gentile. I mean, you know, Paul says the Galatians are foolish, but friends, you and I are so vulnerable to the same way of thinking, and there's a certain kind of spiritual logic to it. Imagine you're a Gentile. The Messiah is from the Jews, right? And, and you have the Apostle Paul, who's a Jewish man, and he comes and he preaches to you, and you're converted under his ministry. And then somebody else who's a Jew comes later and says, yeah, but, you know, you need to keep the law. And, and you, you know... It makes a certain sense. If God, how would God, it's God's law, and he's holy. So doesn't it make sense intuitively that God would want more obedience, not less from you? Ah, but you know what? Paul literally blows his gospel top. Why? Because this requirement is not an addition to the gospel. It is the subtraction of the gospel. It's the loss of the gospel. Do you notice how starkly Paul portrays this? Look at verse 2. Look, I, I, Paul, I, the circumcised Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Or verse 4, you are severed 
from Christ. If you think that you have to sever your foreskin in order to be approved by God, friends, you have severed yourself from Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Because what's happening is that Paul is saying that there are only two alternatives, right? And those two alternatives, to be circumcised or to not be circumcised, those are really the tips of two totally opposed, what I'll call justification icebergs. And so you make your decision about whether, you're being, whether you should be circumcised in order to be acceptable to God. Paul is saying, you've bought the whole iceberg, In other words, the the requirement that you as a Gentile would have to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law in order to be justified before God, you've bought a whole way of thinking where you are saying, you know what, justification by Christ is not enough. I need to be justified by the law. And Paul says this, notice in verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, Paul's saying, understand what you're doing. If you buy into this way of thinking, the symbolism of circumcision, the way of justifying yourself by your own obedience, that means you've got to keep the whole law. And that's something that nobody can do. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 3, In Galatians, Paul's already told them that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Friends, if you or I think that our obedience before God is the basis or could ever be the basis for our approval before God, know this, we are under a curse. Why? Because... Paul goes on to say in verse 10, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It is impossible for you or I to ever be obedient enough. And so if you cast your hopes of being approved by God on your own obedience, your own conformity to the law, Paul is saying you've abandoned Christ. You've abandoned, you've walked away from the, what Paul calls the offense of the cross. What's the offense of the cross? Why does he call it an offense? Why is it a stumbling block? It's a stumbling block to the pride and self-righteousness of men. You see, if you think that, that your obedience to God's law, you can understand God's law, and you can respond to God's law adequately. So there's a meeting not only of your minds, between your mind and God's mind, but then your life produces a performance that is good enough, that satisfies the law. If you do that, friends, you're a proud person. Because you're saying that God's holiness is within your reach. Your obedience ain't what you think it is. And God's holiness is far more than you imagine it to be. And Paul describes the cross as an offense. It's like this two-pronged attack on the pride of men. That's why it's an offense. First, the cross shows us our liability. Friends, look at this cross with me. Do you know what it says? It's offensive to the pride of men because the first thing it says is, guess what? You are way more sinful than you ever dared imagine. 
You've never gotten to the bottom of your sin. Ever. You're way more sinful than you ever imagined. And here's how the cross shows us that, because nothing less than the incarnation of the Son of God, a lifetime of obedience under the law that you and I had disobeyed and disregarded, and then finally culminating in his substitutionary death on the cross, nothing less than that was required to answer your sin. Friends, that's an offense to our pride that we think our record is good enough. And if God is so holy... And my sin is so serious that Jesus Christ had to die for my sins in order for me to be reconciled to God. Then how can my pride ever justify its existence? How can my, how, what is there in my record? If Jesus Christ had to die for our sins, friends, that means that there is no way that my life could ever produce a record that would be satisfactory to the requirements of God's law. And so my pride, what's, the cross sucks all the oxygen away from my pride. But not only uh, does the cross attack our record of our pride by showing us that we have liability before God. It also shows us that we have inability. In other words, the cross says you're more sinful than you dared imagine. Nothing less than God's Son coming and being crucified in your place was required to answer your sin. And by the way, prong two, you are totally powerless to fix your past or to safeguard your future. You have no ability to do it. And this is the wonderful thing, that the offense of the cross that Paul is describing in our relationship with God, it takes away all the basis we have for boasting in ourselves as we stand before God. But, but remember that the cross is the gift of God's love to us, friends. Because if God's only objective, you have to remember this, if God's only objective was to judge us for our pride, he did not have to send his son into the world. Right? John 3.17, I love this verse. If I ever finish Matthew, I'd love to do a series on the verses after the most well-known verses in the Bible. And John 3.17 might be the first one. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, the world was already condemned. God didn't have to send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. So the fact that God sent his son into the world means that God's purpose is so much more than just to condemn our sin. It's to rescue us from our sin. Do you see that? So the cross means that God's purpose is to deliver you. And friends, if Jesus Christ was willing to die and wanted to die for your sins, wanted to die for your sins, wanted to give himself as a substitute for you, wanted to bear your sins in his body, wanted to place himself between your sin and God's just wrath against your sin, wanted to give his whole life to be the mediator for you, 
When you were at your filthiest, when you were at your guiltiest, when you were farthest away from him, friends, when you were the least humble and most proud before him, when he was at the farthest periphery of your life or imagination, when you were just encased in your self-righteousness, if Jesus Christ not only had to die for your sins, but was willing to die for your sins at that point, then what possible need, what need could we have to ever be proud before God about our Because when we had nothing but a record of guilt and alienation and estrangement from God, the Son of God came and died for our sins. The the cross makes pride obsolete, don't you see? Now, the reason this is so important is because until you know you're forgiven, until you know you're accepted by God, until you've been freed by this alien righteousness, not of your own making, but of God's giving. Until that's true, you cannot love God. You can't love him for who he is. You can only love an idol. You can't love him for his holiness because you can't look on his holiness. Until you know there's an answer for sin, You cannot love God's righteousness. You can't love him for his righteousness. But you see, his righteousness is an inseparable part of his beauty. And until God has freed you by the gospel of justification by faith, you'll be proud before him, and you won't be able, therefore, to love him. So thanks be to God that verses 5 and 6 tell us what the Christian's posture is, right? For through the Spirit, we're, we're not seeking to be justified by the law, through the Spirit, by faith, by faith, faith in God. We trust Him. We trust His record. We trust His faithfulness, not our own. We ourselves wait for the hope of righteousness coming down upon us, right? Not being lifted up. We wait for it. It's a gift. It comes from God. It's God's gift to sinners, not for people who keep the law. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith, only faith, working through love to God. So beautiful. No room for pride before God because the gospel has freed us to love him for who he is. And we're also freed by this same gospel to love one another, friends. And that's what Paul addresses in verses 13 through 26. The same gospel that frees us from our pride to be able to love God vertically frees us to love one another horizontally. And in fact, what Paul shows us is that apart from a gospel of alien righteousness, outside righteousness, not only will it be impossible for us to love our brothers and sisters, but it will be inevitable that we will relate to one another in exactly the opposite way. We will do what he describes in verse 15. We will bite and devour one another. And I'll explain why here in a minute. Notice again that Paul just brings home this truth about love as the fruit of the gospel. Look at verses 13 and 14. There's a 
you know, verses 1 through 12 are really about our standing before God, and then there's a turn, the fruit of the gospel that comes out of, uh, of our reconciliation with God and peace with God is that now our horizontal relationships with one another are transformed. So he brings up the second dimension of freedom in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, He'd been talking about our freedom before God, but now he's going to be talking about our freedom to love one another. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law, now he deals with the second greatest commandment. You see? Verses 1 through 12 about the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And now he deals with the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the same gospel frees you to fulfill both. Now, friends, this is true. You can only, I can only truly and freely love my brothers and sisters when I have been freed from the need to compete with them. I can only truly and freely love my brothers and sisters when I have been freed from any need to compare myself with them. See, for a lot of you, when I use the word compete, you say, well, I don't compete with my Christian brothers or sisters. Nonsense. Let me tell you what competition looks like. Comparison. Comparison. What possible reason do you ever have to evaluate someone else's spirituality or to measure yourself against their spirituality? Friends, every person in this room compares him or herself to brothers and sisters in Christ. We compare how we compare marriages, we compare parenting. We compare knowledge of Scripture. We compare our level of involvement in the church. We compare our giving or the the things that we're involved in, the ministries that we're involved in. And friends, when we compare, we are pridefully operating. So you may not think about competition, but comparison comparison is the place. See, that, it looks so innocent, but what it really is, is the fruit of your pride. Either you're boasting, think about this pendulum, right? Pride is always a pendulum. It's never stable. It cannot, remember, by its very nature, we saw this last week, that that by its very nature, pride is marked by insecurity, The very thing that we boast in is the very thing about which we are the most insecure. So pride is a pendulum. And until Jesus Christ comes and frees you from, until he frees you through the gospel of justification by faith, you will be chained to that pendulum and you will spend your life swinging wildly between the extremes of boasting, oh, I'm better than those people, and insecurity. I really stink in comparison to those people. And you cannot love those people when you're on that pendulum. Don't make the mistake of thinking that pride only manifests itself in triumph, 
when you're the king of the hill? The person at the bottom of the hill can be just as consumed by pride as the person at the top of the hill if they both think that they have to climb that hill to be okay. The difference between the guy at the top of the hill is that he succeeded in his pride. And the guy at the bottom of the hill is he failed in his pride, but he's just as proud. That's why Paul, do you notice this? This is so profound. Paul says, notice, envy, verse 21, is one of the works of the flesh. Envy is self-absorbed emptiness. It's just as proud as self-absorbed fullness, which is boasting. It's just a different manifestation of the same root problem. Pride, envy is I am self-absorbed in my emptiness. I'm proud. So how does, the, how does the cross, the offense of the cross, free us here horizontally? Well, friends, here, think about it this way. Again, same logic of the cross. The cross means that Jesus Christ had to die for your sins, friends. And if he had to die, if your sins alone required the sacrifice of the Son of God, then what do you have left in your inventory of your record? What do you possibly have left to boast about or feel superior about towards someone else? You've got nothing left. I don't have anything left. nothing left. There's no argument. There is no argument. There is no argument by which I can ever, no legitimate argument by which I can ever say I am better than anyone else. That's what the cross means. And similarly, it's not just that Jesus had to die, but he was willing to die. This is my body, which is given for you. Take, eat. He was willing to die, and if he was willing to die for me, when I, when he, if he wanted to die for me because he loved me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins and when I was far from him, then what possible need Do I have to be proud before anyone else? I don't need to impress you. I don't need to be better than you. I don't need, I I don't have any need because the greatest one has loved me with the greatest love. And if, to the degree that I believe that, I'm going to be freed horizontally. Now notice, notice I've done this a little bit backwards, okay? Because notice how Paul describes what the offense of the cross frees us from. And it is so timely to think about this as we come to the table, friends. He, he has this contrast that he makes, right, between flesh and spirit, and, and it's worthy of many messages. But I just want to highlight something. Look at the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. He lists 15 things. And guess what? Eight, eight of those 15 have to do with the manifestations of pride. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, 
right? All those things have to do with pride. We're either on the offense of trying to assert our pride or we're, you know, on the defense of trying to, to protect ourselves with our pride. But either way, apart, what Paul's describing is outside of Christ, apart from the gospel of the justification, of justification by faith alone through an alien righteousness, guess what life's going to be like? It's going to be littered with the debris field of human pride and it's going to be brutal. Notice what Paul says, how he describes it, what the alternative is in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying if you aren't set free by the gospel of justification by faith, if a a church's culture is not set free uh, unceasingly and unyieldingly and continually being set free by the gospel of justification by faith, what's going to happen is that a culture of cannibalism is going to be produced. You're going to bite and devour one another, and you're going to be consumed. Do you see that? Paul's warning us that apart from the freedom given to us by the gospel, we'll become cannibals in our relationships. Now, why would you do that? Why would that be the outcome? Why would you, if you didn't believe the gospel, why would you, why would you need to bite and devour other people? Why would you need to be critical? Why would you need to have this gotcha approach to them? You blew it. I saw that. Why would that be the outcome? Well, friends, it's because of this. Unless I believe that my justification comes from without, comes from outside of me, to me, as a gift in Christ, unless I believe that, then I will relate to others for my justification rather than from it. That means that pride is going to be the only available currency that I have for assurance. If I think that my justification, my standing before God is a function of my obedience, then how am I ever going to know that I'm obedient enough, that I'm performing well enough? How is it going to work? Well, I'll tell you how I'm going to know. It's going to work just like the rest of life. The way, and Paul, this is what Paul's describing, okay? The way I'm going to know that I'm performing enough or being obedient enough is by performing more than this person and being more obedient than that person. It's going to be through comparison, isn't it? That's how I'm going to be assured. Well, at least I'm not that bad. At least I'm better than that. And what that's going to produce is an inability to love somebody because I can't love somebody I'm climbing over as a stepladder to my justification. You can't do it. And some of you are doing it in your marriages. And some of you are doing it with your kids. And some of you are doing it with brothers and sisters in this church. And you just, you just have to see that that is not the gospel. You are not better than they are. They are not worse than you are. They are not better than you. In the gospel. So, friends, whether in our families, our households, our marriages, our relationships in the church, let us not settle for anything that resembles this cannibal culture that Paul is describing, that is the grim, gospelless alternative. 
Jesus didn't die and give his life so that we would consume one another. He didn't die and give his life for his people's sins, loving us in our darkest and deepest lostness. He didn't do all that to create a gotcha culture in the church. What he did that to do was to create a restoration culture in the church. He did all that not to create a self-righteous culture in the church, but a Christ-righteous culture in the church. He did all that. That offense of the cross reminds us that he gave himself not to create a survival of the fittest culture inside the church where, where criticism and sanctimonious gospel proliferates and where thanks and commendation are rare Exactly the opposite. And the healing wonder of the gospel is this, friends. Jesus has done it all for us so that in order for us to lift up Christ, we do not have to push our neighbors down and we do not have to elevate ourselves before God. And now we come to the table and, and the table is, if we had eyes to see it, the table is the, is the reminder again of how the gospel deconstructs our pride. Because you know what? The table reminds us that we have no basis for pride before God. We have, we have a basis for boasting in God and because of what God has done for us, but not boasting before him as though we had some record that would uh, compel him to do this for us. Because friends, guess what? This is about the cross, Right? nor at the table do we boast a relative to one another. We all eat the same meal. All Christians eat the same meal in the same portion and experience it by the same necessity. Friends, Jesus has given everything for us and that gospel frees us from the pendulum of pride. Let's enjoy that freedom and refuse to submit to the yokes of slavery. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now for the power of your gospel to change us vertically and to transform us horizontally with one another that we would not get in the way of your achievements, that we would not try to stand in front of the glory of your cross. We pray in your name. Amen.